Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Do Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. What does it mean to be normal? What even is normal? It's a strange concept dependent entirely on context, and yet, in spite of this flexibility, it's an inescapable word. Try as we might, we can't seem to escape it, even as it seems to collapse under critical scrutiny. So again, what does it mean to be normal? And is normal even something we should try to be? This is an animating question for Phil Chrisman in his new essay collection, How to Be Normal, a collection of previously published writings of the last few years, a sort of companion piece to his previous book, Midwest Futures, which we discussed together in a previous episode. These essays are simultaneously fascinated by and skeptical of all the ways normal dominates our public discourse, especially in the wake of the COVID pandemic where a return to normal has loomed over us as the most important achievement we can aim for. Chrisman tries to get beyond this imperative, and in a series of reflections on masculinity and gender, race and whiteness, religion and faith, culture, irony, love, and family, he tries to get beyond the existential and social imperatives of some presumed normality and think critically about what true flourishing would look like about the sort of people we'd all actually want to be. Phil Chrisman teaches writing at the University of Michigan. His first book, Midwest Futures, was a common wheel notable book of 2020, a finalist for a Midwest Independent Book Award, and winner of the Independent Publishers Awards Bronze Medal for Great Lakes Nonfiction in 2020. His other writing has appeared in a number of outlets, including The Hedgehog Review, Common Wheel, Pace Magazine, and Plow Quarterly. Phil Chrisman, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning, um, maybe tell us a bit about what their work tends to focus on. Last time I had you on, you said you weren't quite sure what maybe the (laughs) thing that defines your work is. Um, Have you come up with an answer in the last couple years? Like, would you say there's any particular animating themes that run throughout uh, your work? Not really. Um, I mean, people have people have started describing me as an essayist and critic because I don't give them any better description to go off of. So, right. uh, you know, yeah, I, I'll take that. And until I until I write a novel that I'm happy with, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm an essayist and critic. An enigmatic writer with a capital W. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, a high achievement. Um, I want to kick things off with this book by asking you about the question or idea of normal, which runs obviously throughout this book, but also was a central theme in your last book we talked about on the Midwest. Um, For you, normal seems to have been over the years, a very productive literary muse, something that you're really trying to wrestle with uh, and tease out. Um, you're at times skeptical of it and trying to deconstruct it and try and understand uh, the sort of 
you know, things that the word normal often is covering up or hiding. Could you maybe just speak to why normality is such an interesting thing for you to explore and write about? Yeah, I mean, that's not something that I um, set out to do. Uh, it's it's one of those things that other people had to let me know that I was doing. Um, I've, I've told this story elsewhere, but after I had written the essay on the Midwest that became my first book and the essay on masculinity that is, is one of the anchors of, of this book, um, both for the same magazine, um, Barbara McClay, who, uh, used, she used to edit me at Hedgehog, um, and is also one of my, one of my favorite writers. Um, she said to me that you have two thirds of a being normal trilogy. Um, and so that was when I first became aware that, oh yeah, I'm, I, I guess I'm, kind of doing variations on a theme here. Um, and I think it's part, I, I guess it's partly that I like, uh, I like th- uh, concepts that I can have a, an ironic relation to. Um, and, and that's, that's one. Um, what, because because it's a it's a thing that as soon as you name yourself or something else as that you it it's like it puts a little bit of distance between you and the thing um to 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 tell yourself well i'm a i'm a very normal american or, or whatever um is immediately to estrange yourself from yourself in a way um and and I, I I guess I find that kind of doubling kind of fascinating, um, you know what what can fall into those little cracks, um, and then you know it's all it's also just kind of accident of birth. Uh, I happen to have uh, well I, I I happen to fit the subject positions you know white guy white cis guy, uh, heterosexual, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to, I didn't have to exert any particular pressure on myself to, to, to be read as those things. Um, and I, I grew up in the Midwest, which is, uh, one of the stories America tells itself about itself is that the Midwest is kind of uh, a place of undifferentiated Americanness. Um, so all of those things, you know, uh, that just, that just kind of happens to be who I am. Um, but then I've, I've never, uh, I've never felt like I fit super smoothly into the world, uh, just despite that. Um, so that's something that was, <laughs> was alarming when I was young, but it now is kind of, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's a productive tension. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's given me something to write about. So now I'm, it, yeah, now it's, now it's helping me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, kind of teasing a little more out about normal. Um, you talk uh, real briefly uh, at the beginning of the book about the uh, COVID pandemic and how it has really forced us to rethink normal, um, partly because there's this huge expectation or desire for a return to normal mm-hmm. at times that has taken the form of a sort of imperative um, where people have really uh, struggled 
with losing kind of the most basic sorts of routines and patterns and expectations they had with the world. And there's a sort of, uh, not just a desire, but in many ways, a desperation to return to normal. And there's a couple of things to that. Partly, uh, given your own politics, you lean a little more left. Um, you are probably skeptical about whether normal or, or the normal we had is worth returning to. But yeah, also, no, I think there's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, normal wasn't great. But um, also, I think it's just been uh, disturbing, but also from kind of just a literary perspective, kind of interesting to see how people respond to that disruption of normality. Um, you know, has <laughs> have the last couple of years kind of confirmed your suspicion of normal? Have they adjusted your understanding of the concept? Like, what have... <sighs> Yeah, the last couple of years done for you and you're thinking on this? Uh, I mean, one, the, the, the last couple of years have forced me to more seriously entertain all, all sorts of psychoanalytic concepts that I've always been very suspicious of and that just sounded like um, <laughs> intellectual self-torture to me before, things like the death drive. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, because the the drive to return to normality in the summer of 2020 and was was a death drive. I mean, maybe it was not, you know, it was it was a drive towards somebody's death anyway. Um, or to either, get together at the holidays. Uh, yeah. Every yeah. every December is a very big ethical dilemma for some people now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I'm still <laughs> I mean, on the one hand. So, so I think the conservative stereotype about a lot of conscientious risk averse liberals is, is that they've almost enjoyed, uh, having something else to worry about too much, <laughs> uh, and, and that it's, it's a chance to be a killjoy. And it's, I won't say that I don't encounter people who I, who I, I suspect a little bit of fitting that description. Um, and then at the same time, I definitely feel like there are lots of people who as i say in the book are just it just seems like they're flinging themselves at a virus in the hope that it will uh be intimidated by how tough they are <laughs> uh and and you know like i still find myself not fully going back to normal um cuz i i live with an immunocompromised relative who who i like uh you know uh i don't I, I I enjoy having this person around and don't want her to die. So I'm, I'm probably going to, I don't, I hate, I hate masking a lot. Um, I, I never got used to it, um, but I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to keep it up for a while. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, um, I was already like the, the, the big thing that was happening in my world right before COVID hit was that I was emotionally and financially to the, to the extent allowed by law um, involved in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, you know, and I was, I was volunteering as, as I, I was pushing myself to volunteer probably more than, than I ever have for anything political before. Um, not, not that it was enough. <laughs> uh, and so that was already like, I was, I was trying to change the default of, of normal for America. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I'm very uninterested in a, in a return to a 20, 
to a 2018 normal, uh, God knows, or a 2015 normal or a 2013 normal. Um, I, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, to start uh, moving into the book a little bit. Um, so the first essay, I think it's the first essay and a fairly long one is uh, one on masculinity, uh, how to be a man. Uh, and this is, I think the first thing I ever read of yours, it was in Hedgehog Review a few years ago, correct? Yeah. Um, and you point out that there's this uh, bizarre kind of dilemma for a lot of men today where they kind of have a couple options for how to be. On the one hand, uh, men are often kind of seen as a sort of joke. They can't take care of themselves. They don't really know how to organize a house or cook super well. And they kind of have to accept that they're just kind of uh, you know, a bit silly. On the other hand, you've got uh, some men, and you mentioned Jordan Peterson as exemplary of this insistence that men are actually the most serious thing of all. They are not to be taken lightly. They are not jokes at all. And they bang their fists on the table and yell a lot and cry on television about the collapse of the West and that sort of thing. So uh, not to say there aren't other options, but for a lot of guys, these seem to be kind of the two main existential options available. Uh, could you maybe explain this bizarre dilemma a little bit? Um, could I explain it? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I can talk about at great length about what it feels like to be, to be in it, um, which is more what the essay does, but it's, um, you know, I've, I've, I've read some of the different scholarly accounts of the genesis of patriarchy and it, it is, it is a hard thing to wrap one's mind fully around. Um, I mean, I do think that, well, one of the things I say in the essay, I think is, is that, uh, not the, the, the more I free myself from any pressure to live up to any particular pattern because it is manly. And the more I ask, simply ask myself what my ethical standards and my sense of what is, you know, good and, you know, uh, like what is morally good to do. Um, and, and my sense of what my own skills and, you know, the opportunities that are in front of me are, the more I look to those latter sets of things and, and the less to like, you know, what would a guy do? Um, the better at the, the, the better choices I tend to make about my life. Um, I mean, I, I think, uh, it's, it, it is, it's hard to lay that as to lay that male mythology aside, but, um, I think it's important to do so. Uh, and, and what's really interesting is, is that as, as I sort of lay aside anxiety about seeming masculine enough, um, it's, it's not like I get perceived as unmasculine by the people closest to me. Um, whatever, whatever think qualities that term is a placeholder for. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, if I were writing that essay right now, I'm because I think kind of what I was trying to do there was, was give people who 
might be attracted to the Petersonian account of things, uh, an alternative way of understanding their situation. And of course, um, <laughs> it's kind of a, that's kind of a dumb way to do it because, you know, guys like guys like that are probably not going to read a sort of like ironic, self-mocking, highly critical account of masculinity in the Hedgehog Review that 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 treats it as a as a concept to be ironized. <laughs> that, was, that was just the wrong way to go about it. Um, if I were writing that today, or if I were writing it for a different audience, I might say that the manliest thing you can do is do what you think is right do what you think would be right for anyone in your position with your challenges skills opportunities whatever disposition um to do uh that that is uh that that is not only the sanest thing to do but it's also uh the quickest route to being perceived as manly if that's what you're worried about (laughs) Right. Yeah. Built into the kind of insecurities you talk about regarding your masculinity, one that kind of stuck out and resonated with me was this desire or this need you felt to be something more than just present. You needed to have some sort of surplus or excess or mm-hmm. or some je ne sais quoi. Um, and that was kind of what the expectation was. Uh, or that you at least felt in terms of uh, being a man, like, could you maybe explain this? Like, what is it about men that makes them feel the need to be more than simply functional? They need to, you know, have some extra. To be super heroic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where I picked this up, except that I was definitely taught as a kid that, I had uh, a, a kind of God-given role to protect women, uh, to protect women and children, which that that's one of those ideas that's kind of a trap because on on some level, like sure, if somebody's about to shoot at my wife and I have the chance and the presence of my mind and the wherewithal to jump in front, I mean. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be my moral duty to do because I married her, you know, like, <laughs> um, not because I'm the man and she's the woman, but because like, I, I do think self sacrifice for those we love is, is an admirable quality. It's an admirable quality in women too. Uh, but I was, but I was taught that like, protection was it was a kind of role or job that was handed to me and protection of course is infinitely open-ended there's whatever is actually threatening someone in the present tense right now and then there's whatever like easily imaginable things might threaten them soon and then there's um what whatever i can make up in my paranoid imaginings you know, and pretty soon you're at a kind of Dick Cheney style one percent doctrine, where if there's a one percent chance that something is going to to kill Americans, then um, it's it's morally incumbent upon us to torture people or um, knock over sovereign nations like like their gas stations. Uh, you know, to 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 just go ahead and do that. Somehow this doesn't apply to 
dealing with climate change, uh, be- probably because, you know, all of Dick Cheney's <laughs> friends in the in- energy industry. Um, but, you know, like it's, if you decide your role is protector, I mean, you can just sit around and think of shit that you maybe need to be ready to protect someone from forever. There's no, there's no end to that. Um, so I think, I think it's a little bit that, and I think, you know, uh, not to be one of those unfun people who says that pop culture, you know, contains harmful ideological lessons, but pop culture does contain harmful ideological lessons. Uh, you know, pop culture definitely holds up the, these sort of omnicompetent, uh, male protector figures, uh, who are really cool and really fun to watch and read about. Like I, I've, uh, I've gotten really into the Jack Reacher novels in the last couple of years. Uh, write, writing an essay about masculinity hasn't saved me from enjoying those books. <laughs> you know, this is a this is a person who like uh, is always churning out to to have uh, new um, new skill sets and new areas of expertise that allow him to fend off the most seemingly impossible of threats, you know? Uh, and, and you watch that as a kid and you think, Oh, that's cool. How do I become like that? <laughs> uh, and you know, I mean, uh, for some of us that, that never fully goes away. Yeah. To that bit you were talking about, uh, yeah, you can sit around and kind of contemplate all sorts of disaster scenarios that you need to be ready for. Like there is kind of an, infinite regress to that like there are just countless possible things you would need to be prepared for but if you do that the result is not going to be like a hyper preparedness or even a proper preparedness for things that might actually happen i i think after a while you're just going to burn yourself out um and end up kind of a you know schizophrenic you know nervous wreck which you know, we talked about Jordan Peterson earlier. That seems to be kind of almost the product you're going to end up with if you try and uh, game out every plausible scenario. Um, You know, and he's far from the only one. You can probably name like a number of uh, men who have just kind of ended up, you know, in these very weird emotional zones that give rise to some very weird politics in the Midwest and elsewhere. Do you think that's kind of part of the problem, like this kind of personal yeah. schizophrenia that gets translated into a almost kind of conspira- the conspiratorial products. We see. Uh, yeah. I mean, schiz- schizophrenia is probably not the word that I sure. use there just because it's, it's a, it's an actual An diagnosis actual thing, yeah. and it, they, they don't like it being used as a metaphor, which I, I get, but, um, but yeah, well, not only that, but I, I think it, it, um, I think people get so focused on the fantasy threats that they, and this was something that I was kind of trying to get across in, in the essay, uh, that, that they miss things that are actually making the lives of the people they care about difficult. Like I, I, I don't want to name names, uh, but I know a lot of guys like this where um, on the one hand, it's like, I'm, 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 I live in a suburb. Um, it's been decades since I've seen crime, but Fox news has got me all scared. And so suddenly I'm really obsessed with the idea of getting a gun. Um, meanwhile, uh, 
you know, my, my wife is working herself half to death, <laughs> keeping the house clean and I barely even notice, you know, I mean, we all, I, I think, I think we've all met guys like that. Um, I, I've, I've had to, res- I've had to sort of push myself uh, not, not to, to become that. And yeah, I mean, I tried to ask, ask myself, um, you know, why it is, you know, when, um, the, when I was finally in a relationship that was serious enough that it looked like it could lead to marriage, uh, um, as it ultimately did, uh, you know, my wife and I would find ourselves in these conversations about, well, why, why do I feel more worried, stressed out and tired than she does when she's doing more practical work that actually like maintains our kind of daily quality of life? Um, why, why was I, why was it hard for me to keep up with her? Why was it scary for me to even think about trying to keep up with her? Um, and and I I tried to really take an honest look at why that was. <laughs> part of it is that I have an anxiety disorder and she doesn't, you know. So in my defense, but part of it was that um, something I w- it, it just felt like something be- about being a man left me in a state of feeling overburdened all the time, even when objectively I was not that burdened. And I was like, okay, well, why the hell do I feel that way if 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 it's if it has no basis in reality. Um, and, and this essay is kind of the part of the fruit of me asking myself that question over and over again, over a long period of time. Yeah. Moving to another essay, you, uh, talk about, uh, questions of race in America and you note that, uh, whiteness, like a lot of other characteristics that we would maybe describe in some way as normal for America belonging to this kind of normal culture of the Midwest is an incredibly flimsy concept. It does not hold up to any scholarly scrutiny. Any, you know, high schooler doing a research paper could figure out that whiteness was, you know, socially constructed in a very particular time and place with particular political ends in mind. Um, it's really not that difficult. And yet it has managed to persist and adapt and uh, maintain a, a bizarre sort of hegemony throughout our culture. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what you seem to be suggesting in this essay is that it perhaps persists because of that flimsiness, because it's able to kind of adapt and uh move through multiple sorts of evolutionary yeah if, if it doesn't if it yeah. doesn't really mean if it doesn't really mean anything except we've carved out another group of workers that we're going to be so so much worse to so that all the workers don't organize together and fight us off um and then the his, the ongoing historical ramifications of then believing that fiction, uh, of of then seeing these people who these groups of workers who have been separated from each other as as actually like um, separate peoples, uh, in in some quasi scientific sense, uh, and 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 acting as though that fiction were true and and reifying it into truth, you know, if whiteness really is nothing but that um if if it doesn't 
concretely describe much of anything else, then it it it, it can also describe anything you want it to describe. You know, you you it could just be this conceptual bag that you can just keep throwing things in forever and ever. Um, which is which is why I think every every time um, uh, this is going to sound very cynical, and I wish I didn't have to be this cynical, but uh, you know, lo- looking at the way uh, white America in particular has forgotten George Floyd so quickly. <laughs> uh, you know, I kind of have to say it this way every, every time it becomes fashionable among especially white collar white people to somewhat performatively and well, performative doesn't rule out some amount of sincerity, some somewhat phonally, somewhat sincerely, um, wrestle with racism um you do see these efforts to sort of say uh well part of how white people maintain hegemony is through uh, specifically white cultural practices and then whenever someone tries to name what those are and say well you know don't 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 do these things or don't default to these things because that's racist the the you get the strangest lists um you know, and 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 then of course this the, the the efforts to do that end up being so ridiculous that they end up serving the interests of those who don't want anyone to discuss racism at all. So s- someone will do some ill-advised training where they say white cultural traits include being really rational and <laughs> math and. <laughs> You know, uh, and then someone will take a screenshot and uh, the anti-critical race theory people will will circulate it around and be, see, this is this is what critical race theory is. But no, it isn't. That's ridiculous. Um, And, and, you know, it helps discredit this small good thing that's beginning to happen. Um, And I, I was part of what I was trying to do with that essay is is answer that question. Like, why, why, why is it that when people describe what white people are like, um, you just wind up with this incomprehensible, like this list of stuff that like lots of people do, uh, this, or, or this list of stuff that is like not really representative of everyone we call white it's just like some regional trait or something um so it's 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 either uh things like uh rationality or bureaucracy which are like these are found all over the world or it's things like oh they like mayonnaise they wear shorts in the winter they eat lutefisk which are (laughs) not that's that's being Scandinavian or that's that's being a, a Midwestern frat boy or it's like that's not being white. Why doesn't this describe anything concrete? Uh, I, I was I was trying to figure that I was trying to figure that out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Speaking to those kind of bizarre lists and experiences that come up, you talk about um, how there is often kind of this performative allyship uh, that white people often perform uh, that is largely detached from any sort of substantial or serious political program, but it does have these 
kind of performative forms of, uh, you describe it almost, it, it is kind of like almost a religious performance or ritual. It's this performative confession and self-flagellation. Um, and it can take you to some bizarre emotional places, which not to discount that sometimes those sorts of experiences are needed, but there is this sort of emotional disconnect um, or political disconnect with some of these characters. I, th- yeah, I think you name uh, Robin D'Angelo as kind of exemplary of this sort of performativity that's detached from any substantial political program. Uh, could you maybe speak to that uh, yeah. weird disconnect, those two very different tracks? Well, I, I mean, I think it... I think that kind of stuff, I mean, first of all, I, I had to write about that stuff and I had to figure out that stuff. Um, I had, I had to like come to an understanding of, you know, is that stuff wrong? Um, and if so, why, why is it wrong? Because I'm a, (laughs) I, I, I'm a, I, I try really hard. I mean, I fail but I try to actually live out the things that I believe. And when I, and I was a very, very, very sincere little 20 something. And when I first kind of fell into the social justice world of, you know, uh, as it existed in the, in, in my, in my early twenties, you know, in the, in the early two thousands, um, when you still had a lot of this kind of stuff kicking around, um, I felt if you told, you know, if you, if you told 20 year old me that I should feel really guilty and be really angry at myself for being white, just for being white, um, for, for existing, um, I, I, I would believe you and I would feel really shitty and I would, it, you know, I, I would, spent a lot of time beating myself up about things that I had no control over. Uh, and I, I would sometimes put up with really ill treatment from other people because as a white man, I can afford this. I probably deserve it on some level. Um, and it, you know, I kind of really put myself through it as a young person. Um, and, and I kind of, learned very slowly not to do that um you know like it took some time in therapy (laughs) uh and so then when i see that stuff resurfacing um you know in in various forms and in 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 other struggles too like the mid 20 teens ironic misandry thing i was never able to to get behind that either because it um well, I would, I would believe you, you know, if you, if you said, uh, you know, I, I, the world would be better off if, if all the men just, you know, dropped off <laughs> the planet one day, I would believe that you meant that. And I would, I would, I would kind of flash back to the period of my life when I thought maybe I was just kind of a burden on the, on the, on the world. And I would be like, how dare you lightly <laughs> ask me to go there just because you think it makes for a funny tote bag, you know? Um, I, I felt like I really had to think about and wrestle with that stuff. And I mean, where I landed is that I did not start becoming that you can't be much use to other people, including people who are, 
victimized by worse injustice than you are uh if if you don't have some baseline level of self-respect and when the rhetoric of a social justice movement starts asking you to internalize a view of yourself that negates that I, you are being you are being asked to go into an emotional place that makes nobody very productive or at least doesn't make me very productive so people who ask you that from outside your identity are undermining their own goals if if they want you to be useful for their cause you know they they shouldn't want you to hate yourself too totally um but i also i i also came to have a, a less individualist and more systemic conception of all this um and i also started to think in terms of class and class struggle i mean partly just because of the resurgence of marxist thought over the last uh, i mean since 2008 i mean when i became a leftist it felt like most of the roads that took an idealistic you know college age kid toward the left were sort of anarchist and individualist I became a leftist by reading like Chomsky and ad busters and like, even like really stupid crime think pamphlets about how, you know, you shouldn't wear deodorant because you shouldn't let the man tell you how to smell. And that's part of Christianity or whatever, you know, like those were the paths to be being a leftist when I was a kid. Um, And a lot of that, I mean, I'm not dissing anarchists at all. I, I know and love, uh, I think some anarchists are really wonderful people. I certainly admire Chomsky almost boundlessly, almost. Um, but yeah, I mean, I uh, learning to think more about what it takes for working people to come together and, and what role uh, a Robin D'Angelo plays in that, which of course is to make that harder. <laughs> you know, it, she's, she's, and I don't, I wonder whether she understands this, but the people who pay her to do those seminars certainly understand that her job is to come in and make it so that I can't say to a black coworker, you know, there's a common struggle against the boss and against the people who are kind of taking surplus value off of, off of our work uh, that brings us together. Um, because what I've internalized instead is, you know, oh no, 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 no. You're this person's pain and exploitation is of a very special kind that if I, you know, uh, suffer, if, if I were trapped at the bottom of a mountain for 500 years, I still couldn't possibly understand it. Uh, so I can't make a claim like that, that, that names a common interest and a common enemy. Um, and yeah, th- that's deeply sinister. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to build an actual political program out of that yeah. um, starting point. Um, moving along, you have a really interesting essay on middlebrow culture, which is kind of a bizarre uh, and very recent phenomenon. I want to kick off uh, asking you about it. Um, you give kind of a history of how it emerged as a distinct concept. Um, and we could, you know, there's probably a bigger history of how it actually emerged as, you know, part of this stratification of culture and society. Like it obviously couldn't have 
existed in certain times and places. Could you maybe give us just an introductory understanding of what is even meant by middlebrow? Because uh, it's, again, one of those terms that's, uh, it sounds like it refers to something, but as soon as you try and <laughs> interrogate it, you start finding all sorts of exceptions to the rule or counterexamples. Or- yeah, well, and it, it changes and it's it's used to do different jobs. Yeah, I mean, I partly wrote the essay because I was trying to figure out um, I found that other people were using it and that I would catch myself using it and I couldn't define it very well. And I wasn't sure that it meant anything. And so when I find myself doing that, then that's usually for me, like a cue that I maybe need to write about something like, Oh, there's a, there's a word in my vocabulary that seems like a (laughs) meaning black hole. (laughs) Uh, I, how did that get there? I better, I better figure this out. Um, and uh, boy, it's been a while since I since I wrote that essay. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what my brilliant conclusion was about the word middle brow. But I, if I mean, I, remember, I, I you bring I, up some letters from Virginia Woolf, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, she well, so so in in Virginia, it's point. Yeah. it's an essay that she wrote that um, wasn't published at the time she wrote it, but it, it came out posthumously. Um, yeah, that. That essay, I, I end up being really hard on Virginia Woolf in in my essay, um, which is interesting because I actually really love her work. Um, like she's she's one of the sort of canonical arty writers that I have the strongest emotional response to, and I I, I think what's especially frustrating is that I think there are moments in her in her work where she seems like she's really trying very hard to overcome the the snobbery that was kind of bred in her by her class position like you see that in three guineas um you see that a little bit in mrs dalloway like she's trying to get in the mind of this you know grubby proletarian uh but um yeah, in that essay, she's not trying very hard. And she, she basically makes the argument, well, there's there's highbrow culture. It's it's kind of a version of the argument that Mr. Miyagi makes with uh, Daniel and the Karate Kid, or, you know, if you're very committed to karate, that'll work. If you're not committed to karate, if you just don't do karate, that's fine. But if you kind of fuck around with karate a little bit, uh, you'll get, it'll be like you're walking in the middle of the street. You'll, you'll get, you know, run over. Um and she kind of says that about being cultured. If you're, uh, if you go, if you go to Oxbridge and um, learn all the proper places to put the diacritical marks uh, on the Greek vowels or whatever, uh, if if you do things the correct way, um, then that's great. And if you just like, uh, you know, uh, the evening. Uh, the Daily Mail and uh, Music Hall, then that's fine. Uh, but if you try to like do something that is in between those two, or if you try to bridge those two things, uh, well, you'll just you'll you'll get something that is is neither. Um, and the, so that ends up like being an anxiety that recurs. Uh, you know, in, in later writers. Um, and then what, but what struck me is that we're still using the term in an era when, uh, like, 
I don't even know what a highbrow today would look like. Or like Virginia Woolf can can name like real highbrows because she is one. She ha- really has been to the right universities and she's the product of many, many generations of, you know, people uh, knowing the right way to do everything from edit a Greek manuscript to cook an egg, you know, um, you, you can, you can, uh, you can question those people's rules and standards and strictures, but they, they definitely have them. Um, what, what would a highbrow look like now? I mean, I, I, like we we live in a society that has been changed from wolves in almost unimaginable ways. Like why are we still talking about middlebrow when highbrow and lowbrow really can't be said to ex I, I don't think they can honestly be said to exist. I mean when the when the New Yorker um, feels, when the New Yorker has a television critic, you know, like, can we, can we say that, that highbrow exists when the New Yorker runs articles on, uh, on metal bands? I, I, I mean, I don't, what, what, what would be, what would even be highbrow now? Why do we still think the middle range between these two things that no longer exist still names anything? Um, yeah. And my, my conclusion just ended up being uh, that we need to stop playing this game where we uh, don't democratize the society in any meaningful way, but we insist on democratizing culture instead, that, <laughs> that we need to stop neurotically um, having fights about uh, the right way to do culture uh, that are just displacements of political uh, a political egalitarian project that we want to pretend has happened but hasn't happened yeah to speak a bit more to that conclusion if i can quote you um in the s in this essay you write uh quote why have we settled for this strange cultural compromise lowbrow genres done with middlebrow earnestness in pretend revolt against a thoroughly defunded highbrow regime the answer is simple and depressing We have accepted the idea of the democratization of culture. We have accepted rightly that, say, opera is not inherently worthier than jazz, that superhero comics are not inherently dumb, that ancient epic poetry is not automatically loftier than rap, with which it shares some features, that all of these things can be done well or badly, and that they serve different ends. We have done all this without accomplishing democracy. Um, So can you... you were kind of alluding to this just a moment ago, but can you speak a bit more to this bizarre situation where we have uh, democratized culture, but society as a whole is still fundamentally undemocratic in so many ways. And so culture is kind of perhaps the, has become the whipping boy of people who are politically frustrated um, and kind of trying to find some sort of expression of that. Yeah, I mean, right. That's that passage is an expression of me being um, eternally pissed off about two different things. One of which is not that important, but it's kind of stupid, and the other of which is like of life and death importance. Um, you know, it, it, it's 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 that if 
we we still talk about this figure of like the guy who reads difficult novels um in public so that he can like make other people feel stupid i don't encounter people like that i feel very strongly that if you whip out a copy of infinite jest in a coffee shop like you're asking to be picked on and you would probably be smarter to either read it on your phone or like put a different book jacket on it or something um like i feel i we joke as though you still get you can still get big cultural cachet by reading um old or classic or difficult um or or supposedly difficult uh fiction or poetry um and i just you you can't i work in academia i have definitely like done better at like parties full of like university associated people. I have definitely done better by being able to talk about uh gang uh game of Thrones, which is such a piece of shit TV show. I, I, I stopped at season four. I was like, I've seen enough violent rapes for one lifetime. Thank you. The show is not worth this. <laughs> uh, but by talking about that, then by my ability to, to talk, you know, relatively uh, familiarly about the works of James Joyce. Like I, I, the, some stupid TV show has been like the entree, entree to way more conversations in a line of work where supposedly like, you know, people are, are, are highly educated and snooty. Um, then, you know, uh, a great writer. Um, so I'm really, I'm, I'm frustrated and annoyed and insulted by, by the assumption that if I read something that, uh, once upon a time, maybe had some highbrow cachet somewhere with somebody that that's just a performance that's aimed at, aimed at impressing you. Um, and I'm really, really annoyed by doing that, but, but by, by being subject to those kinds of, of casual insults in the same culture where we permit billionaires to exist, you know? Like, I mean, in a way, you can just think of, of this essay as a disguised uh, form of of like me being really like, like super pissed off, like beat somebody up in a bar pissed off about the inversion of the meaning of the word elitism that's been accomplished mostly by uh, conservative political actors, but with n- no little help, I think, from uh, from culture journalism, uh, and, and even from academics where, um, Jeff Bezos is not an elitist, but a grad student who makes 20,000 a year, uh, who can make sense of Hegel is an elitist. I mean, which of these people actually belongs to a socioeconomic power and money elite which of these people literally enjoys the the privilege and power of a feudal lord (laughs) like multiplied many many times 
and which of these people is like you know struggling not to get crushed by the boot of the other one you know like come on and, and you I, can just, probably it's... draw a line between you know the defunding of those kind of supposedly elite institutions yeah. you know the fact that the grad student is barely getting by on his stipend versus the existence of billionaires like those aren't unrelated yeah. it's just the yeah. responsibility has been uh, uh displaced yeah yeah yeah, it's just I'm I'm frankly I'm frankly tired of absorbing anger <laughs> that that should be directed at them. Uh, you know, and it's not like I I, I won't say I, I overstate this point in the Middlebrow essay. Um, there are still intellectual and art snobs. Um, I I hadn't out encountered any in a long time but I've encountered a few since I published that essay and it made me, okay, I overstated things slightly when I said there are none left, but like, I don't know what they think they're doing. Um, It's like, that is not a potent gesture anymore. Being like, Oh, you're a moron because you've, you've never read a, a, an experimental European novel. Like that impresses nobody. I, so I like, there are still people in the world who will try to be mean to others in that way. But, um, it's, it's so, it's like flexing muscles you don't have. It's so like, it doesn't, I don't know who that still works on. Um, and yeah, uh, but, but like, that's, that is not a problem that we really like those, those people are not like a huge social problem that we need to like continue to stigmatize <laughs> liking good art for, you know, like they, those people, have, those people have lost the YA and Marvel people are winning. Like everybody chill out. <laughs> the, the snob is not the reason you don't have health care. Exactly. The yeah. snob is definitely not the reason you don't have health care. The snob also does not have health care. Just <laughs> the snob also doesn't have health care. And, and most of the people I know who like, I don't, I don't, most of the people I know who like things that get called snobbish in this way, like they're just, they're not snobs either. You know, uh, I, I don't, I don't meet very, very many people who will, who like, I, I know lots of people who have strong opinions about, uh, which bands are shitty and which ones aren't, but I don't know very many people who will be mean to you if you like a shitty band. Maybe that's just because I'm an adult and that's something that only a teenager would think is cool. But like, I don't meet people like that. They're few and far between. And yeah. um, to move along, uh, you have a couple essays on faith and religion uh, that I want to ask about. I want to start by talking about uh, fundamentalism, which you talk a bit about your own background with. Uh, but I want to ask about uh, how fundamentalists read Um, So on the one hand, you point out that their approach to the Bible is very direct, does not have a very sophisticated hermeneutics, takes things pretty literally, and uh, has a very simple approach. At the same time, uh, many fundamentalists have a very dynamic way of reading the rest of the world. They are, uh, you know, just they come alive when they are asked to find, you know, proof of the Antichrist. I've heard of, you know, mathematical proofs that Barney was the Antichrist. I've seen all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, 
they they are very there's a very rich hermeneutical tradition there do you think there's like some sort of relation between their very direct approach to the bible um and how they're maybe taking their hermeneutic imagination out on the rest of the world. Uh, could you speak well, to that's that? Well, a, that's a good way to put it, taking your hermeneutic imagination out on the rest of the world. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it does kind of feel like a displacement. Uh, although, I, uh, I mean, one of the things I wanted to show in the fundamentalism essay is like that, I think for people who are not Christian fundamentalists and and who only know Christian fundamentalists kind of from outside as the 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 people who are organizing to make sure that gay people don't get any rights, you know, uh, I think they can just look like stupid weirdos, um, and it's one of the things I wanted to show is that there is. I consider it misdirected, but there is real, uh, there is a lot of intelligence and ingeniousness that gets expended in those circles. Um, and another way that that's true that I don't do justice to in the essay um, is, is that like, uh, I, I don't know if you've, have you read Craig Thompson's blankets that, that uh, graphic novel? Um, it was, it was, it made kind of a big splash in the mid two thousands and, uh, I, I, it meant a lot to me, but it's, it's about somebody with a similar background and something really interesting happens where he, he gets to be about 17, 18, and he starts to have some questions about the Bible. And so he goes to his minister, uh, and is like, well, wait a minute, what about this? These things seem like contradictions. And the minister says, well, yeah, the, the minister begins to say some of the relatively more sophisticated things that you would learn at like a decent seminary. Like, well, yes, there was a process of development uh, over the course of the Hebrew Bible, uh, and there are varying attitudes toward the afterlife, and there's this and there's that. And, and the kid is just like, process of development? <laughs> like, you, you never mentioned this before, buddy, you know? Um, and I've had similar exchanges with, with people, um, in my family or, or, uh, when I was younger with, with, uh, you know, the, the kind of headier people in, in the congregation where I grew up, where I would have a question and they would give me an answer to it that was actually not bad. Um, but the kind of everyday pulpit rhetoric would be diametrically opposed or implicitly opposed to some of the stuff that they had just said. Um, especially when someone is starting to like doubt in a way that might lead them to, to leave the faith, like people will start making concessions. You know, when my dad was worried that I wouldn't, that I was just going to not be a Christian anymore, he would, he would throw in my opinion, relatively like much more sophisticated thinkers like G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis at me. And then when I became more attracted to like, so for example, C.S. Lewis's vision of the afterlife and punishment after death in The Great Divorce, um, which is a good deal more nuanced than uh, you're going to get lit on hell uh, on fire and poked with pitchforks forever because you can't pass a theology quiz, which is what I'm hearing from the pulpit every week. Right. Um, 
you know, he, 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 it was like, that was uh, my concession to keep me in the fold. But then when I started to be like, yeah, okay, I'm, I find this stuff very convincing. I think I'm going to become an Episcopalian. Uh, and I, I, I think maybe I believe in some sort of, uh, purgative, uh, purgatory process. And I think some people who aren't Christians are definitely going to go to heaven. And then suddenly it's like, no, 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 wait, no, no. <laughs> Uh, I never agreed to that, you know, like they, they, um, so there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the, the intellectual sophistication can come out even about the Bible, um, when the time is right. And it's like, if they would just stay in that place more often, I would, I would probably be a little less angry, but then, but I think that that's kind of one way it feels like there's a, I always felt growing up like there was a division of labor. Like there were certain people who were tasked with like doing the thinking. And then, you know, there are other people who are just supposed to be rank and file Christians who are supposed to accept whatever oversimplifications we get from the pulpit, um, which I, I don't think that's a good way to go about it either. Um, and yes, I think in that, then those people get very into reading the rest of the world in very creative, if, if, in, if often wrong ways, um, they need an outlet for that side of them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're, cause, cause we're intellectual beings, you know, even, even if we don't think, even if we think we're stupid, even if we did bad in school, I mean, we got, we, we have brains and they itch for use in the same way that like, I'm not an athlete. I'm never going to be like, I'm never going to impress anybody with my athleticism, but if I never exercise, I feel bad. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, another thing I really loved about this part of the book is the lesson you actually draw away from uh, fundamentalism and kind of your observations of it. And that's a sort of humility because you point out that uh, a lot of these people are really smart. They think really hard about these things and they put a lot of effort into trying to make sense of the world, but in just such a fundamental, fundamentally wrong direction um and your takeaway is not you know that they're completely stupid but that they're that one can think really hard and try your best to be right and still be so fundamentally wrong can you maybe speak to that you know humility that you've learned from them yeah the ending the ending of that essay is very important for me because so there's a way of writing about fundamentalism that is either I am a secular liberal uh, and I'm looking at these people and, oh, my God, they're crazy. And then <laughs> and then may, sometimes there's like a, a second part of that where it's like, but I spent some time with them and they're nicer than you'd think. Uh, you know, can't we all just get along as Americans? Uh, we, we need more dialogue. <laughs> um and then there's another way of writing about fundamentalists. It's like, I used to be a fundamentalist and then um, I learned about evolution and then I learned about feminism and now I'm smart. Uh, so I can't be a fundamentalist anymore. Yeah, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And it was really important to me to write honestly about some things that uh, about my, my upbringing and about the ideology of, of people like who remain very close to me in, in, in the case of my family that, that make me angry (laughs) that I think are, are bad for them and bad for the world uh, and, and are, are constraining 
repeated disastrous political choices. Um, and that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying like, oh, but it's, it's okay. Uh, we all, we all think different. I'm, I'm saying like, you, you are not bad and wrong. And that is why it hurts me that you are allied with something that is bad and wrong. <laughs> you know, it was important to me to say all that. And then it was also important to me to say, oh, but this is not a story about my progress from darkness to light. Um, because there's a million ways to be a moron. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm really um, influenced by an early Neil Postman essay where he talks about stupidity as something we do more than something we are. Um, that's important to me as an educator. Uh, it's because it, it gets me out of the box of, of making assumptions about what my students are, are what, what they're, eternal and unvarying capabilities are and more into like, okay, how can I get them into situations where, where they're going to start to learn to think in ways that I think are more sophisticated? Like, how can I model these behaviors? How can, how can I induce these behaviors? Um, and, but one corollary of that is that I, you can become totally brilliant and still, um, be very profoundly stupid in other domains of your life. Uh, and, uh, I, so the example I use in the essay is, is talking about, uh, what a credulous liberal I became very early in the Obama years, um, where, you know, very, very smart credentialed people would say, we really need a no fly zone in Libya, or there's going to be a humanitarian disaster. And I'd be like, oh no, well, I don't want a humanitarian disaster to happen. And I know Obama is different than boy, he's, he's not like George W. Bush. He wouldn't lie about stuff like this. Uh, no fly zone. Oh, that kind of sounds like you're shooting down planes. Kind of sounds a little like war, but it must be different because, you know, Obama, he's, he's, he's not like Bush. Uh, so I guess, I guess I want this no fly zone thing to happen. And of course that illustration has become very relevant again in the past month and a half in ways that I wish it hadn't, you know, um, we're, we're having this debate about whether to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, I, I think it's insane and unfeeling to blame Zelensky for asking for that. But I think it's 10 million times as insane to actually do it because that's an act of war that could lead to a, a, a you know, a, a nuclear exchange with Russia, you know? Um, so that was a very consequential piece of stupidity that was, you know, making the rounds, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the early Obama years. And I allowed myself to be suckered by it, you know, for a, a couple of weeks anyway. Um, yeah. So I don't, I, 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 my journal, my, my journey into being like a, a part-time member of the secular liberal critical thinking community, although not really because I'm, I'm still a Christian. Uh, but you know, I, 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 I can, I can speak those people's language. Um, I work among them. Uh, but my journey into that world did not, uh, is, did not automatically save me from believing in like, Potentially politically, yeah. yeah, potentially politically disastrous, stupid things too. Um, yeah. So how different am I really? <laughs> yeah. 
Moving along, you have a long essay on the late, great Mark Fisher. Uh, he wrote, or he, there were published posthumously some of his final lectures, which he wrote a long kind of review and response to. Um, one thing I want to ask is about uh, how family has come up in some of those discussions, because you point out that there are some long uh, discussions through um, his work, and this is just a broader conversation on the left about whether or not we need families, how we should orient families and structure, uh, those sorts of things. And I read some of those as someone who really doesn't want a family of my own. I've had, you know, issues, you know, with trying to fit in with my own family. And, you know, I would like to maybe explore other things. But one thing you point out that really struck me was that in a lot of these conversations, the word love is absent. Um, and that really kind of got me to pause uh, because while I would like, you know, to be able to explore other structures of social interaction, um, other ways to organize that, uh, I still want a place where I can learn to cultivate, express, and receive love. Like mm -hmm. that seems a bit more foundational and fundamental. So can you maybe tease out and explain what you think is missing from some of these conversations on the family that are critical and can maybe help us guide us, but are maybe lacking in certain other respects. Yeah. I mean, well, you kind of said, <laughs> you kind of said it and it, it, to, you know, I, I, I feel, um, I feel like love is often missing from them. Uh, and hmm. This, this gets a little complicated for me because, okay, you say the words family abolition to me, and the picture that I have in my mind is that at some point after, you know, other, other preparatory legislation and, and programs, I mean, you're just going to go door to door and like make me and Ashley get divorced, <laughs> you know, make me, my, my wife and I, or, you know, um, okay, your, your kids are going to go live in a crush now or whatever. Um, that's what the word abolition there suggests to me, like very strongly. And when I read family abolition literature, I'm never able to overcome an initial irritation and suspicion at, because often people will, def as, as, people uh, will point out when this is brought up. Uh, what a lot of family abolition writers are actually talking about is exactly what you were saying a minute ago, which is uh, my family was like, uh, like that was a site of misery <laughs> for me uh, and of not fitting in in a lot of ways. And of course that's, there are lots of people that like, that's, um, that's not an uncommon situation. I would like to find ways of giving and receiving love and care um, and, and in ways that are dependable um, and that won't like, for example, abandon me as I get older, uh, but that aren't marriage or that aren't having children. Um, I, I, I can't imagine a good reason to oppose that program in the sense of like <laughs> wanting to have those structures as well as a uh, family for those who want it. Um, 
there's i can't i can't think of a single creditable or decent reason why someone uh would would not want you to have that if that's what you want you're a human being i want you to to give and receive love and care and loyalty uh and i i certainly like it would be crazy mean for me to say okay but you have to marry somebody before you're allowed to have that sorry sorry buddy like what that's why um so like a a program uh where of of uh, abolition of the compulsory family uh makes perfect sense to me as in the same way that the abolition of compulsory heterosexuality makes sense to me but if you say abolish abolish heterosexuality, I just assume you're you mean you're gonna like at gunpoint tell me I have to you know have attractions I don't have. I mean the, that word abolition seems like it's suggesting more than just the creation of alternatives. Um, and and I never can overcome my irrit- irritation at and also suspicion of that that at least in some cases writers. Um, who are are kind of flying under that flag. I mean, their, their intention is, is maybe to do a little more than just build alternative structures. Um, and and so like, I, I, yeah, I find that conversation a little maddening. Sometimes this comes up on Twitter, but in a kind of unfortunate way where leftist a will say, why are we talking about family abolition? That just sounds like crazy academic bullshit. And then leftist B will say, why don't you have more faith in non-academic people? Uh, I, ex- I, I explained family abolition to my coworker the other day and he got it immediately. And that, I, I, that conversation drives me a little nuts too. I've seen several versions of that exchange because I don't object. It's not that I think that people are, who aren't academics are too dumb to Google family abolition and realize that it doesn't literally mean abolishing your family. Uh, It's that like, why should they have to (laughs) like, why would you, I I don't know. It's, it's a little like if I wanted to institute a program of universal good dental care for free. And I said that, 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 that everybody will get no matter what their situation, no matter uh, what their relationship with teeth and food is, <laughs> but I, but what I s- called it was uh, the program to break everybody's teeth. You know, <laughs> like it just it drives me a little nuts. Um, and then also on that subject, I want to say somebody who I think is sympathetic to the family abolitionist line of thought. I've seen her use this language, who writes a lot about love and is a very caring person um is is my friend and fellow um fellow uh, uh belt author uh rachel jolie rachel ann jolie um, oh rust belt fan yeah yeah she's great and and w- whenever i find myself getting really annoyed with the family abolitionist rhetoric, she'll write something really thoughtful and nuanced about it and she's a person who like feels like she, you know, uh, is, is involved in, you know, taking care of her mother to an extent that's like deeply sacrificial. Like she's, she's a, she's just a good person. 
Um, and so then I feel bad for being so annoyed about it. <laughs> so I, yeah, I think she's a, she's a good kind of counterweight to, to some of what I'm saying here. Yeah, kind of moving along with discussions of love and family, you write in one of the last essays on love and marriage that love for you gave you a sort of existential choice. Up till that point, you had, you say you'd been living with a certain sort of distance from yourself. Um, uh, but when you started thinking seriously about marriage and this sort of lifelong commitment with another person, that kind of opened up a sort of existential option, and we could even maybe say imperative of sorts, to start taking your life a little more seriously. Uh, could you maybe speak to, you know, the choice love gave you um, there? Yeah, I mean, it was really, when Ashley and I got together, it, it was really jarring. We, we had met as teenagers, and she had loved the person I was when I was 17, which, um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> then spent several years trying to forget that I was ever that guy, because that's often what people do when they're young. You know, um, when you're, you're young, you're silly or, and there are things you don't understand yet and you're vulnerable and you may feel that you make a fool of yourself or you make some bad choices that hurt you or other people. Uh, and then you, you, you want to kind of, uh, redefine yourself as someone better and cooler who wouldn't do anything stupid like that. Um, and, and being with Ashley forced me to, um, to not mock that guy incessantly because that was the guy that she had initially fallen in love with. Um, and that like, it's, it, it's funny to think about that that was really jarring for me. Um, and it, it meant that I, I had to like stop living with so much ironic distance from myself and my own history. Um, and I had to take myself a little more seriously. There's also like, I don't talk about this in the essay as much, but there was like, I, I took my own life more lightly before we were together. Um, because it's like, well, ultimately, if something bad happens to me, I mean, uh, it'll fuck up my parents. And that's too bad. I like them. But, you know, ultimately, who cares? And now, like, my favorite person in the world would be, like, really destroyed if something happened to me. So I have to take my own life a little more seriously and my own health a little more seriously. Um, and... Yeah, it's weird that that would be a jarring thing to have to learn how to do, but I absolutely did. And I kind of, I mean, that that feels, uh, I don't know, um, that feels like something that maybe lots of people go through some version of this, but it feels a little bit like a, in some ways I was going through a specifically masculine version of that where, you know, um, <clears throat> what if I, what if I decide to go do something adventurous in a dangerous place, <laughs> you know? Um, because that's, that's a manly thing to do. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, like I, I, I mean, William Volman is married, but like being married was what ruled out being 
like a William Volman writer where I'm dashing into war zones. Uh, it ruled that out for me. <laughs> like before, yeah. before that, the, that felt like a much more live option. Right. Well, and it's also that you had to take this part of yourself that you maybe weren't in love with retrospectively, that 17 year old version. Um, you had to kind of take that as more seriously as a part of your own life story in a way that yeah. was maybe uncomfortable at first, but hopefully, you know, you learn to kind of integrate it into that story. Yeah. yeah. Um, to kind of uh, end things here. So you talk at the end about what it means to kind of be a writer. And for you, we've been talking about um, at various points, writing about the Midwest and how the Midwest is assumed to be, kind of this bland, average, typical, boring place. But for you, it's a place that's really interesting. It's dynamic and exciting. And this to you leads to kind of a lesson of what it means to be a writer, um, to not just be observant, but try and go through, you know, these kind of superficial appearances and assumptions and try and find what those appearances are actually covering up. Um, so in closing, you know, what advice would you have to maybe other writers or just people who are uh, struggling to kind of find something interesting in the world around them? Like, how would you encourage people to really try and penetrate that veil of appearances um, and look at the world differently? I, I mean, that's the a first, big one, but yeah, well, yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, the first thing that I think most people struggle with is simply even noticing that it's there. Um, I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, being a writer is defined, at least in some kind of opposition to whatever is everyday or whatever is quotidian. Um, and and questioning that opposition whenever you see it resurfacing in your mind sometimes is, is the first move that you have to make. And then for me, I mean, how, how I how I got to the point where I could write Midwest futures. Um, I guess it's kind of a two-step process of one, recognizing, beginning to recognize and beginning to look for contradictions, beginning to look for places where um, my expectations of banality are not actually being met. Um, like if, if, if the reputation uh, that you, that you're kind of trying to push back on is uh, banality. Then, you know, look for things that go, look for things that go against whatever the conventional narrative is. And then, you know, you, you kind of develop a long mental list of those. And then you just start reading a lot of history uh, because the history will always confound whatever it is that you think is supposedly going on like the the false reputation is often an ideology that has evolved to cover the actual history um and so once you start looking at the history then that starts to become more apparent so i guess that's kind of how i did it <laughs> yeah Great, great note to end on. So as a final question, I always like to ask guests what, if anything, they're working on now. Uh, I know you just had an essay go up in the latest Hedgehog review on small towns, mm -hmm. which could have very easily fit into this anthology 
Oh yeah. Uh, so people can look out for that. But uh, do you have anything else you're working on broadly that you'd like to yeah. share? Um, the small towns piece is coming out soon. Uh, I had a piece last month in plow in their music issue, uh, where I talk about being depressed and listening to, uh, eighties post-punk bands and then finding community in the comment threads on YouTube, uh, under like old joy division videos. Uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, (laughs) my next book, the plan is for my next book and and the plan is for this to come out uh in 2024 so another two year lag time uh we'll see if i can hit that deadline i don't know uh but my next book is kind of going to be a the tentative title is public facts and it's going to be kind of a consideration of uh the processes by which we arrive at uh supposed consensus accounts of reality for democratic purposes basically it's going to be an attempt at doing a left-wing version of the like uh we're having a crisis of authority in america where people don't all agree upon the same facts but from a left-wing point of view where i'm not taking for granted that the new york times uh has has always been you know this this great trustworthy yeah yeah, they 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 endorsed the war in Iraq. Like, how good are they? But <laughs> so yeah, the and that's that's going to be with Belt again because they've been uh, Belt Publishing because they've been nothing but good to me. Uh, and then we'll see what happens alongside that or, or after that. Um, I also uh, I was writing a column for most of the last couple of years uh, that was coming out every other month on new books for Plow Magazine. And I hope to be bringing that out of mothballs uh pretty soon that's been on a bit of a unplanned hiatus yeah yeah we look forward to all that so in the meantime people can follow you on twitter i'm sure to get links to all those as they come out as well as hot takes on movies and (laughs) music and all sorts of other things so in the meantime uh phil chrisman thank you so much for coming back on yeah well thank you for having me